SEP Fanfic Readings presents Draco Malfoy and the Mortifying Ordeal of Being in Love by Is This Self-Care Chapter 10 The Orkney Isles Draco had enjoyed a great many flights in his young life, but that trip across the North Sea ranked as one of the most savagely beautiful he'd ever experienced. He was almost glad for the old broom. It forced a level of care in his flying, and attention to the winds, that his newer brooms didn't. The flight was technical. The crosswinds were many, and the weather capricious, so Draco chose a lower flight path about ten meters above the surge. The air was salty and cold and splashed across their faces like kisses from ghostly mermaids. As they reached open waters, a great skua joined them in their flight. It observed Draco with a beady eye, its wingtip a mere meter from his face. Then it dropped to the sea's surface, skimmed wings with its darkened watery double, and soared away again. As they flew northwards, the skies cleared to reveal a fragile scatter of stars in the sky. Below them, the reflected constellations spilled and plunged into the waves. The sight was sublime. It made Draco feel small and inconsequential. The calming draft must have kicked in, because Granger felt a hair less tense between his arms, though her mittens were still twisted hard around the broom. As far as Draco could tell, her eyes were still closed, and she was missing all of these breathtaking vistas. But, he supposed, whatever got her through it. Something big broke the water below them. Granger, look! There's a hippocampus! No, there's two of them! Hippocampuses! Hippocampi? Oh! gasped Granger, finally opening her eyes. She looked down to where the enormous, sleek heads of the horse-like creatures had split the waves. One disappeared again, but the other breached, its huge tail arcing just below them, then vanishing without a splash into the waves. Draco slowed, wanting to turn back and observe them, but the first hippocampus had appeared again ahead, closely followed by its mate. He urged the broom to catch up. The creatures picked up speed and Draco matched them, skimming the waves just at the height of their manes. They raced. Draco asked the broom for more. The majestic creatures moved below and beside them with no sign of exertion, save the purling mist that burst out of their wide nostrils. One, slightly smaller, with sea-glass green, her mane as white as the foam cresting around her. The other was larger, blue as the sea swells, and just as swift, keeping close to its mate. Salt water soaked them. Draco pressed on, and he was a wave. And the seahorses were waves, and they flew and crashed and foamed, and they surged on. And now they were the wind, and now they were the brine, and now they were sea foam before the storm. The wave riders turned west towards the open ocean. Their pale eyes peered at Draco and Granger, and the male threw back his gorgeous head, as though challenging them to follow towards unknown shores. Draco knew they could not. The pair disappeared like swift-finned spirits, a vision vast fading against the elusive sea. Then there was only Draco, breathless, and Granger, shuddering, and the cloud-foaming waves. Neither of them spoke. The broom resumed her course. Now, on their left and right, there loomed the dark forms of land masses. They had entered the Orkney Isles. The wind grew less cutting and the sea less rough. Ahead of them, a small island glowed like a jewel amongst the dark seas, alight with Beltane fires. The broom, sensing her destination near, put on a fresh burst of speed. Draco spotted a flattish rock face by starlight and came in for a landing. 
Granger must have closed her eyes again, because when her toes hit the ground, she squeaked, and would have tumbled off the broom, but for Draco's arm around her waist. Draco dismounted. Granger's activity would have been more accurately described as a kind of sagging tumble into the moss. "'That was brilliant!' Draco spun under the stars, holding his arms aloft. "'Exhilarating! Fucking magical!' Granger said nothing. Draco cast a lumos at her. She appeared to be hugging the earth. "'You all right?' "'Just a moment,' gasped Granger. Draco left her to compose herself. He cast a few spells inland, which informed him that there were about a hundred witches and wizards on the island, and almost an equal amount of fires, great and small. Granger had regained her feet. Draco, seeing how bloodless she still looked, offered her his arm in a kind of gentlemanly automism. She took it, her own grasp all a-tremble. They advanced towards the center of the island with the Beltane fires, and the sound of a cheerful fiddler guiding them in. As they walked, Draco began to notice immense shapes on either side of them, only perceivable because they were a black opacity, permitting no light of the stars through them. "'Standing stones,' said Granger. "'There are henges this far north,' asked Draco. He didn't actually care whether or not there were henges this far north, but questions of that nature were sure to awaken the swat in Granger and distract her from her jitters. He was right. Granger began in a weak kind of voice, which gained in strength and enthusiasm as she progressed. "'Yes, this is one of the oldest stone circles in the UK. The megaliths are thought to date back to about 3200 BCE. They're all around three meters tall, absolutely breathtaking in daylight, I'd imagine. This hinge is called the Ring of Einhollow.' "'We'll have missed most of the merrymaking, I think,' said Granger, as they grew close enough to the crowd to hear voices. "'Too bad.' I'd hoped to see some of the rituals in person. Which rituals? Oh, old protection magics. Hand fastings, offerings to the Aosai. Lots of jumping over fires and other silliness, too. I don't know why wizards think that'll impress a witch, but then wizards do a great deal of things I don't understand, like viper neckties. Now Granger fell silent, mulling over that particular bout of idiocy. But, well, at least I'll have got what I came here for. They were near the center of the ring now, walking amongst many peat fires and carousing witches and wizards. Granger was staring at the fires in restrained excitement. Her grasp on Draco's arm grew tight. As Granger's attention was elsewhere, Draco pointed his wand at a few passerby and cast nonverbal legilimency. He was satisfied that this was a low-risk situation. The general mood was festive and tipsy, and no one cared who they were. The peak of the celebration was over, and things were drawing to a jolly close. Tents were being put up here and there on the periphery of the fires, while around others, groups were settling down for some whiskey-fueled philosophy. Draco and Granger were accosted by friendly merrymakers and invited to join their fires. Granger politely declined, and steered them to a quieter end of the hedge, where a small fire burned low. "'Let's wait for this one,' she said. "'I suppose it has to go out naturally,' asked Draco. "'No dousing charms.' "'No dousing charms.' Beltane ash at its most primitive. Granger transfigured two stumps into cushy ottomans, which she and Draco pulled towards the fire. After the bitterly cold flight, the heat was positively magnificent. Draco sat close, but Granger was near enough to roast her knees and set fire to her hair. She pulled off her mittens and held her hands close to the flames. Of the thousands and thousands of Beltane fires tonight, why these ones specifically— in the most desolate corner of the UK, 
asked Draco as his face began to thaw. Granger had an answer ready, of course, and seemed delighted that he'd asked. Because the fires of this home are from a very specific fire, the very one that Ceridwen used for her cauldron. I don't know if you remember her tale. Only whatever was on her chocolate frog card, said Draco, vaguely recollecting a witch with masses of dark hair. Looked rather like you, come to think of it. Push, scoffed Granger. I can only dream of becoming a fraction of the witch she was. She was a mistress of transfiguration, amongst many things. She could transform into any creature at will. She makes today's animagi look jejun. Anyway, I'll spare you the treatise. You might have noticed that these flames look a little redder than normal fires. Draco nodded. The flames were indeed reddier than usual. I assumed it was the peat. No, they've kept her legendary flame alive for generation upon generation in these islands. Isn't it incredible? Granger's eyes were bright. What a thing to witness. What a thing to feel on my own hands. It's surreal. It's extraordinary. What do you need the ash for? asked Draco, since she was being so voluble. Granger clamped her mouth shut. Draco shrugged. It had been worth a try. He dug into the pockets of his cloak to pull out the provisions from Thurso. He passed the cured meats and cheese to Granger, and tucked the flask of mulled wine against the fire to warm up again. Granger looked surprised, though whether it was at the foresight or the unexpected kindness, Draco wasn't certain. She tore the packet open. I'm actually starved, thank you. This was so thoughtful of you. I— Draco cut her off to waylay further fluff. Didn't bring any banoffee pie in the anorak. No, said Granger. She fished about in one of the pockets. I do have a few protein bars, though. They might be a little squished. Draco didn't know what a protein bar was, but it tasted like cheap chocolate, which was glorious on his tongue after all the sea salt. They ate. Granger was mannerly about it taking small bites interspersed with further commentary on Ceridwen. Draco wondered, for the first time, what her family was like, and whether they were well-off muggles. She had a sense of decorum, and a kind of innate dignity that spoke of good breeding. Hippocampus would be correct pluralized as hippocampuses, I think, said Granger. I think hippocampi would be an incorrect attempt at regularizing Latin. Hippocampus is a Greek word. Technically, you could say hippocampodes, I suppose. Though hippocampus is now an English word, so really, hippocampus is quite correct, too. I'll take your word for it, said Draco, fetching the mulled wine. I'm not a linguist, so you shouldn't. Draco proffered the flask to her. I'll make us some goblets, said Granger, plucking protein bar wrappers from Draco's lap. So proper, said Draco. His mother might actually like Granger. This wine has been heated by the flame of Saradwin. We aren't sucking it out of a flask like sixteen-year-olds behind the hog's head. Granger transfigured the wrappers into handsome golden goblets. Draco would have informed her that she was quite the mistress of transfiguration herself, but he didn't want her to develop an inflated ego. She nevertheless caught the way he tested the weight of the goblets. She smiled into her scarf. Nice sheen on the gold, he admitted. A pretty illusion, said Granger, looking pleased. But thank you. She paused and hesitated before adding, "'I heard you've an interest in alchemy, so your approval means more than the average wizard's.' "'My approval should mean more than the average wizard's in all things,' said Draco, studying the goblet in the firelight. Granger raised her eyes to the night sky. Draco filled their goblets with mulled wine. 
While we're on the subject of alchemy, you'd tell me if your project involves the creation of a panacea, wouldn't you? Let's not get ahead of ourselves, said Granger, though she was grinning. Drago was seized with sudden excitement, because if anyone could, from what he'd learned of the witch over the past five months, it was probably her. Are you creating a panacea? he asked, leaning towards her. Is that what Shacklebolt's so worked up about? She met his eyes without hesitation. No, don't be ridiculous. Hmm. I'm afraid you're developing rather too high an opinion of me. I'm a mere healer, muddling along with my muggle methods and poultry magical know-how. Poultry, repeated Draco with a scoff. Do you want more cheese? This one's rather too sharp for me. Drago took the cheese and mulled over his mulled wine. Perhaps it wasn't an outright panacea that she was working on, but he rather felt the scope was similar. He had a plan to pry the information out of her. He simply had to be patient. The fire crackled on, eating away at its remaining peat. They stared into it, and as the night wore on, found themselves almost hypnotized by the dance of the flames. The fiddler's song turned mournful and grave. The fire, the peat smoke, the earth... It smelled like history, like new becoming old, and old becoming new. Perhaps it was the wine, perhaps the late hour, perhaps the lingering potency of Beltane night, but the moment took on a dreamlike quality to Draco. Granger became a chiaroscuro painted vision of a witch, her wind-blown hair melding into the shadows behind her, her eyes catching the red firelight. Her hands were stretched to the fire, and it seemed to Draco that the flames were attracted to her and that she could have stroked them if she wanted to. Granger yawned, and the spell was broken. Her sleepiness wasn't a surprise. It was edging towards Draco's usual bedtime, which meant that it was far past Granger's. She put her mittens back on and cast a warming charm around herself and Draco. The fire was low, but still burning. Pete fires, Draco realized, took a very long time to go out. Granger fell asleep on his shoulder. Draco, who had himself been growing tired suddenly found himself alert and ill at ease. This was an entirely new display of vulnerability that he wasn't prepared to deal with. Her breathing was slow and steady, her mittens curled into her lap. Draco's transfiguration skills were decent, but not good enough to transfigure a tent out of the remains of cured meat packet. He settled for elongating Granger's ottoman into a kind of lopsided chaise lounge. She slid into the new configuration without waking. Then, because she seemed small and even more vulnerable lying supine under the open sky, he threw his cloak over her. He topped this off with another warming charm over the two of them, since the dying fire's warmth was decidedly giving way to the night's chill. He cast a few wards in case his own fatigue took over, and he, too, fell dead to the world. It was most certainly excessive prudence, as the other celebrants had retreated into their tents, but Draco hadn't survived this long by being careless. He sat with his back against Granger's chase lounge and watched the last of the flames turn to embers. After another hour, the edge of the pit had turned to ash. It stirred in the silent breeze, and then settled, white upon white. Dawn broke fresh and bright, spilling gold over the Orkney Islands under the cries of wheeling seabirds. Draco awoke with a crick in his neck, and a nose gone numb from the cold. As for Granger, she looked perfectly comfortable, tucked up in his cloak. Draco wondered when he had become such a virtuous fucking martyr, sacrificing his own comfort for bloody Granger of all people. He stomped off on frozen feet to take a piss. 
When he returned, Granger was up and examining his transfiguration handiwork. The chaise had held up through the night, which was a pleasant surprise to Draco, anyway. Granger saw him coming and grew flustered. "'You should have woken me. You didn't sign up to be my manservant on top of everything else. You made me a chaise. It's lovely, thank you. I had a wonderful sleep, which is terribly odd, considering. Oh, and your cloak, here. Thank you for lending it to me. What's it made of? It's so warm. You're moving terribly. Is it your neck? Can I have a look?' Draco took his cloak, swatted Granger's hands away from his neck, and pressed a curt wish for a hot coffee and a prompt departure. Granger pulled her hands back to her chest. "'I saw someone unfurling an entire kitchenette, a few tents down. You might convince him to spare a cup. I'm going to collect my sample.' Draco went in search of his salvation, leaving Granger kneeling next to the fire pit, scooping ash into test tubes. As it turned out, the kitchenette unfurling wizard was willing to spare two cups and slightly dodgy croissants in exchange for the sickle that Draco wordlessly offered him. The hot coffee was worth the ridiculous premium. After the first sip, Draco felt slightly less inclined to murder everyone. Granger annoyed him afresh by not being where he had left her. After a brief, wand-grippy search, he found her a few fires over, speaking with a couple dismantling their tent. She forestalled his lecture with news— the ferry back to Thurso would be there in fifteen minutes. To Draco, this was merely good news, as he didn't fancy another flight in his sleep-deprived state. To Granger, it was excellent news. She even asked to carry Old Glory to the dock, wanting to return the broomstick to the ferrymaster and rid herself of it forever. They wandered through the weathered standing stones to the vestigial docks. Granger was lively and bouncing and gave Draco an unasked-for history of the Orkney's Neolithic peoples— using the broom to point at areas of interest on the monoliths. Seeing that Draco did not match her enthusiasm, she gave him her own coffee to pep him up further, and most of her croissant. The sea breeze picked up as they neared the shore, a beautiful mix of salt and sand and new grass. They boarded the ferry. Old Glory was reunited with her master, and Draco said to keep the deposit. He and Granger had a dispute over whether or not she owed him any money, as she tried to pay him back. He shut her down by threatening to buy the old broom outright and kidnapping her for further flights if she didn't leave off. Then, as the ferry reached open waters, he kipped down on a bench for a well-deserved nap. Granger quietly transfigured the bench's wooden top into plush velour when she thought he'd fallen asleep. "'Who knew the knob would offer such an excellent breakfast?' exclaimed Granger, piling scrambled eggs onto a piece of toast. Draco choked on his coffee, and asked her to warn him when she was going to say things like that. Granger looked prim and said it wasn't her fault that he interpreted innocent remarks as boorishly as possible. But she did know a handy charm for tracheic expulsions, so he could continue to giggle about penises as he pleased. She would save him from joking. Granger finished eating far before he did, which meant that she had ample time to watch him not quite move properly, because of his neck. She began a spontaneous lecture on cervical muscle spasms, pondered the health of his spinal accessory nerve, described in detail what she would do to his sternocleidomastoid, if only he would let her, and generally badgered him until he was no longer enjoying his eggs. "'Fine!' snarled Draco, shrugging off his cloak and pulling his robes aside to expose his neck. "'You would have thought he'd given her a great gift, permitting her to help him.' She shuffled closer to him along the bench, eyes alight. "'Finally!' "'Don't move. This won't take a moment.' The tip of her wand found the juncture where his neck met his shoulder. That was not a feeling that Draco liked. 
In fact, it was a real manifestation of his nascent trust in her that he allowed it at all. The next feeling was much better. A cooling, instant relief, as Granger spoke a healing spell. "'That's better, isn't it? I know it's a muggle remedy, and you won't do it, but I would recommend heat therapy if this steel feels tender tomorrow. It'd help with the blood flow.' Draco rolled his shoulders. His neck felt wonderfully free. "'You had a horrid night because of me, and I'm sorry,' said Granger. "'Let me eat.' Granger insisted on paying for breakfast, and they made their way to the knob's hearth to flew to their respective homes. Granger reached for the flu powder pot at the precise moment that Draco did, resulting in skimming of hands, and immediate retraction from both parties. Then they did the idiotic thing where they insisted that the other go first for a long and annoying minute. Draco, his patience thin, waved his wand at the pot and levitated it firmly into Granger's chest. Go! Ugh! said Granger, hugging the pot to herself before it dropped. She pried the lid open and looked ready to fling the flu powder into the fire and leave in a huff. However, she stopped and turned back to Draco instead. Her expression changed to something uncertain and awkward. "'Malfoy, I—I I wouldn't have been able to collect my samples without you. I would have had to put off my project until the next Beltane festival, if it wasn't for you being there. I would never have made that a flight by myself.' Draco had never been one to shy away from receiving the praise that was his due— in fact, he tended to bask in it. But something about Granger's guileless sincerity and gratitude made this frightfully awkward. Plus it was Granger. Her being nice to him gave him the heebie-jeebies. "'Go home, Granger,' he said. Granger threw a fistful of powder into the flames. "'Okay. I'm glad you came. I'm going to go now. Thanks again. Bye. The mitre!' She didn't meet his eye and turned away into the flames. A few minutes later, Draco was dusting soot from his cloak in his own parlor— he was very much looking forward to a bath and a bed. Henriette, who had materialized upon his arrival, was sent off to run the bath, as hot as she could make it. As Draco made his way to his chambers, he wondered whether the bath would count as heat therapy. Not that he cared for Granger's mugglish treatments, but... Should he send her a note asking about it? She would probably answer with a twelve-page explanation and suggestions for further reading. His cloak still smelled like Granger and peat smoke. He sent her the note. 